Chapter One of Ziska by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ilianthi. Chapter One. It was the full season in Cairo. The ubiquitous Britisher and the no less ubiquitous American had planted their differing society standards on the sandy soil watered by the Nile, and were busily engaged in the work of reducing the city, formerly called Al Kahira or the victorious, to a more deplorable condition of subjection and slavery than any old world conqueror could ever have done. For the heavy yoke of modern fashion has been flung on the neck of al and the irresistible, tyrannic dominion of swagger, vulgarity, has laid the victorious low. The swarthy children of the desert might, and possibly would, be ready and willing to go forth and fight men with men's weapons, for the freedom to live and die unmolested in their own native land. But against the blandly smiling, white-helmeted, sun-spectacled, perspiring horde of Cook's cheap trippers, what can they do save remain inert and well-nigh speechless? For nothing like the cheap tripper was ever seen in the world till our present enlightened and glorious day of progress. He is a new grafted type of nomad, like, and yet unlike a man. The Darwin theory asserts itself proudly and prominently in bristles of truth all over him, in his restlessness, his ape-like agility and curiosity, his shameless inquisitiveness, his careful cleansing of himself from foreign fleas, his general attention to minutiae, and his always voracious appetite. And where the ape ends and the man begins is somewhat difficult to discover. The image of God, wherewith he together with his fellows was originally supposed to be impressed in the first fresh days of creation, seems fairly blotted out. For there is no touch of the divine in his mortal composition, nor does the second created phase, the copy of the divinio, namely the heroic, dignify his form or ennoble his countenance. There is nothing of the heroic in the wandering bibed who swings through the streets of Cairo in white flannels, laughing at the staid composure of the Arabs, flicking thumb and finger at the patient noses of the small hireable donkeys and other beasts of burden, thrusting a warm red face of inquiry into the shadowy recesses of odiferous bazaars, and sauntering at evening in the Esbekia gardens, cigar in mouth and hands in pockets, looking on the scene and behaving in it as if the whole place were but a reflex of Earl's Court exhibition. History affects the cheap tripper not at all. He regards the pyramids as good building, merely, and the inscrutable sphinx itself as a fine target for empty soda-water bottles. Well, perhaps his chiefest regret is that the granite whereof the ancient monster is hewn is too hard for him to scratch his distinguished name thereon. It is true that there is a punishment inflicted on any person or persons attempting such wanton work, a fine or the bastinado, yet neither fine nor bastinado would affect the tripper if he could only succeed in carving Ari on the sphinx's jaw, but he cannot, and herein is his own misery. Otherwise, he comports himself in Egypt as he does at Margate, with no more thought, reflection, or reverence than dignify the composition of his far-off Simeon ancestor. Taking him all in all, he is, however, no worse, and in some respects better than the swagger folk who do Egypt, or rather consent in a languid way to be done by Egypt. These are the people who annually leave England on the plea of being unable to stand the cheery, frosty, and in every respect healthy winter of their native country, that winter which with its wild winds, its sparkling frost and snow, its holly trees bright with scarlet berries, its merry hunters galloping over field and moor during daylight hours, and its great log fires roaring up the chimneys at evening, 
was sufficiently good for their forefathers to thrive upon and live through contentedly up to a hale and hearty old age in the times when the fever of travelling from place to place was an unknown disease and home was indeed sweet home infected by strange maladies of the blood and nerves to which even scientific physicians find it hard to give suitable names they shudder at the first whiff of cold and filling huge trunks with a thousand foolish things which have through luxurious habit become necessities to their pallid existences they hastily depart to the land of the sun carrying with them their nameless languors discontents and incurable illnesses for which heaven itself much less egypt could provide no remedy it is not at all to be wondered at that these physically and morally sick tribes of humankind have ceased to give any serious attention as to what may possibly become of them after death or whether there is any after for they are in the mentally comatose condition which precedes entire wreckage of brain force existence itself has become a bore one place is like another and they repeat the same monotonous round of living in every spot where they congregate whether it be east west north or south on the riviera they find little to do except meet at rumpelmeyer's at cannes the london house at nice or the casino at monte carlo and in cairo they inaugurate a miniature london season over again worked in the same groove of dinners dances drives picnics flirtations and matrimonial engagements but the kyrian season has perhaps some advantage over the london one so far as this particular set of swagger folk are concerned it is less hampered by the proprieties one can be more free you know you may take a little walk into old Cairo, and turning a corner you may catch glimpses of what Mark Twain calls oriental simplicity, namely picturesquely composed groups of dear, delightful Arabs, whose clothing is no more than primitive custom makes strictly necessary. These kind of tableau vivants or art studies give quite a thrill of novelty to Cairoan English society, a touch of savagery, a soup-con of peculiarity which is entirely lacking to fashionable london then it must be remembered that the children of the desert have been led by gentle degrees to understand that for harbouring the strange locusts imported into their land by cook and the still stranger specimens of unclassified insect called upper ten which imports itself they will receive bakshish Bakshish is a certain source of comfort to all nations and translates itself with sweetest euphony into all languages and the desert-born tribes have justice on their side when they demand as much of it as they can get rightfully or wrongfully they deserve to gain some sort of advantage out of the odd-looking swarms of western invaders who amaze them by their dress and affront them by their manners Bakshish, therefore has become the perpetual cry of the desert-born it is the only means of offence and defence left to them and very naturally they cling to it with fervour and resolution and who shall blame them the tall majestic meditative arab superb as mere man and standing naked-footed on his sandy native soil with his one rough garment flung round his loins and his great black eyes fronting eagle-like the sun merits something considerable for condescending to act as guide and servant to the western moneyed civilian who clothes his lower limbs in straight funnel-like cloth casings shaped to the strict resemblance of an elephant's legs and finishes the graceful design by enclosing the rest of his body in a stiff shirt wherein he can scarcely move and a square-cut coat which divides him neatly in twain by a line immediately above the knee with the effect of lessening his height by several inches the desert-born surveys him gravely and in civil compassion sometimes with a muttered prayer against the hideousness of him but on the whole with patience and equanimity influenced by considerations of bakshish 
and the English season whirls lightly and vaporously, like blown egg-froth over the mystic land of the old gods, the terrible land filled with dark secrets as yet unexplored, the land shadowing with wings as the Bible hath it, the land in which are buried tremendous histories as yet unguessed, profound enigmas of the supernatural, labyrinths of wonder, terror, and mystery, all of which remain unrevealed to the giddy-pated, dancing, dining, gabbling throng of the fashionable, travelling lunatics of the day, the people who never think, because it is too much trouble, people whose one idea is to journey from hotel to hotel and compare notes with their acquaintances afterwards as to which house provided them with the best cooked food, for it is a noticeable fact that with most visitors to the show-places of Europe and the East, food, bedding, and selfish personal comfort are the first considerations. The scenery and the associations come last. Formerly the position was reversed. In the days when there were no railways, and the immortal Byron wrote his chilled Harold, it was customary to rate personal inconvenience lightly. The beautiful or historic scene was the attraction for the traveller, and not the arrangements made for his special form of digestive apparatus. Byron could sleep on the deck of a sailing vessel, wrapped in his cloak, and feel none the worse for it. His well-braced mind and aspiring spirit soared above all bodily discomforts. His thoughts were engrossed with the mighty teachings of time. He was able to lose himself in glorious reveries on the lessons of the past and the possibilities of the future. The attitude of the inspired thinker, as well as poet, was his, and a crust of bread and cheese served him as sufficiently on his journeyings among the then unspoilt valleys and mountains of Switzerland, as the warm, greasy, indigestible fare of the elaborate table d'hôtes at Lucerne and Interlaken serve us now. But we, in our superior condition, pooh-pooh the Byronic spirit of indifference to events and scorn of trifles. We say it is melodramatic, completely forgetting that our attitude towards ourselves and things in general is one of most pitiable bathos. We cannot write chilled herald, but we can grumble at both bed and board in every hotel under the sun. We can discover teasing midges in the air and questionable insects in the rooms, and we can discuss each bill presented to us with an industrious persistence which nearly drives landlords frantic, and ourselves as well. In these kind of important matters, we are indeed superior to Byron and other ranting dreamers of his type, but we produce no chilled heralds. And we have come to the strange pass of pretending that Don Juan is improper, while we pore over Zola with avidity, to such a pitch has our culture brought us, and like the Pharisee in the Testament, we thank God we are not as others are, we are glad we are not as the Arab, as the African, as the Hindu, we are proud of our elephant legs, our dividing coat line, these things show we are civilised, and that God approves of us more than any other type of creature ever created. We take possession of nations, not by thunder of war, but by clatter of dinner plates. We do not raise armies, we build hotels, and we settle ourselves in Egypt, as we do at Homburg, to dress and dine and sleep and sniff contempt on all things but ourselves, to such an extent that we have actually got into the habit of calling the natives of the places we usurp foreigners. We are the foreigners, but somehow we never can see it. Wherever we condescend to build hotels, that spot we consider ours. We're surprised at the impertinence of Frankfurt people who presume to visit Homburg while we're having our season there. We wonder how they dare do it, and of truth, they seem amazed at their own boldness and creep shyly through the Kurgarten as though fearing to be turned out by the custodians. The same thing occurs in Egypt. We are frequently astounded at what we call the impertinence of these foreigners, i.e. the natives. They ought to be proud to have us and our elephant legs, glad to see such noble and beautiful types of civilization as the stout parvenu with his pendant paunch, and his family of gawky youths and maidens of the large-toothed, long-limbed genus, 
glad to see the english mamma who never grows old but wears young hair in innocent curls and has her wrinkles annually massaged out by a paris artiste in complexion the desert-born we say should be happy and grateful to see such sights and not demand so much backsheesh in fact the desert-born should not get so much in our way as he does he is a very good servant of course but as a man and a brother pooh egypt may be his country and he may love it as much as we love england but our feelings are more to be considered than his and there is no connecting link of human sympathy between elephant legs and sun-browned nudity so at least thought sir chetwynd lyle a stout gentleman of coarse build and coarser physiognomy as he sat in a deep armchair in the great hall or lounge of the gazira palace hotel smoking after dinner in the company of two or three acquaintances with whom he had fraternised during his stay in cairo sir chetwynd was fond of airing his opinions for the benefit for as many people who cared to listen to him and sir chetwynd had some right to his opinions inasmuch as he was the editor and proprietor of a large london newspaper his knighthood was quite a recent distinction and nobody knew exactly how he had managed to get it he had originally been known in fleet street by the irreverent sobriquet of greasy chetwynd owing to his largesse oiliness and general air of blandly meaningless benevolence he had a wife and two daughters and one of his objects in wintering at cairo was to get his cherished children married it was time for the bloom was slightly off the fair girl roses the dainty petals of the delicate buds were beginning to wither and sir chetwynd had heard much of cairo he understood that there was a great deal of liberty allowed there between men and maids, that they went out together on driving excursions to the pyramids, that they rode on Lilliputian donkeys over the sand at moonlight, that they floated about in boats at evening on the Nile, and that, in short, there were more opportunities of marriage among the flesh-pots of Egypt than in all the rush and crush of London. So there he was, portly and comfortable on the whole well satisfied with his expedition there were a good many eligible bachelors about and muriel and dolly were really doing their best so was their mother lady chetwynd lyle she allowed no eligible to escape her hawk-like observation and on this particular evening she was in all her glory for there was to be a costume ball at the gazira palace hotel a superb affair organised by the proprietors for the amusement of their paying guests who certainly paid well even stiffly owing to the preparations that were going on for this festivity the lounge with its sumptuous egyptian decorations and luxurious modern fittings was well-nigh deserted save for sir chetwynd and his particular group of friends to whom he was holding forth between slow cigar-puffs on the squalor of the arabs the frightful thievery of the sheiks the incompetency of his own special dragoman and the mistake people made in thinking the egyptians themselves a fine race they are tall certainly said sir chetwynd surveying his paunch which lolled comfortably as if it were by itself in front of him like a kind of waistcoated air balloon i grant you they are tall that is the majority of them are but i have seen short men among them the Khedive is not taller than I am, and the Egyptian face is very deceptive. The features are often fine, occasionally classic, but intelligent expression is totally lacking. Here Sir Chetwynd waved his cigar descriptively, as though he would fain suggest that a heavy jaw, a fat nose with a pimple at the end, and a gross mouth with black teeth inside it, which were special points in his own physiognomy, went further to make up intelligent expression than any well-moulded, straight eastern type of sun-browned countenance ever seen or imagined. Well, I don't quite agree with you there, said a man who was lying full length on one of the divans close by and smoking. 
"'These brown chaps have juiced fine eyes. "'There doesn't seem to be any lack of expression in them. "'And that reminds me, there is a fellow arrived here today "'who looks for all the world like an Egyptian of the best form. "'He is a Frenchman, though, a Provençal. "'Everyone knows him. "'He is the famous painter, Armand Gervais.' "'Indeed, and Sir Chetwynd roused himself at the name, Armand Gervais, the Armand Gervais, the only one original,' laughed the other. "'He's come here to make studies of Eastern women. "'A rare old time he'll have among them, I dare say. "'He's not famous for character. "'He ought to paint the Princess Ziska. "'Ah, by the by, I wanted to ask you about that lady.' "'Does anyone know who she is? "'My wife is very anxious to find out whether she is, well, uh, quite the proper person, you know. "'When one has young girls, one cannot be too careful.' "'Ross Courtney, the man on the divan, got up slowly and stretched his long athletic limbs with a lazy enjoyment in the action.' He was a sporting person with unhampered means and large estates in Scotland and Ireland. He lived a joyous, don't-care life of wandering about the world in search of adventures. He had a scorn of civilised conventionalities, newspapers and their editors among them, and whenever Sir Chetwynd spoke of his young girls, he was moved to a reverent smiling, as he knew the youngest of the twain was at least thirty. He also recognised and avoided the wily traps and pitfalls set for him by Lady Chetwynd Lyle in the hope that he would yield himself up a captive to the charms of Muriel or Dolly, and as he thought of these two fair ones now and involuntarily compared them in his mind with the other woman just spoken of, the smile that had begun to hover on his lips deepened unconsciously till his handsome face was quite illuminated with its mirth. "'Upon my word, I don't think it matters who anybody is in Cairo,' he said with a fine carelessness. "'The people whose families are all guaranteed respectable are more lax in their behaviour than the people one knows nothing about. As for the Princess Ziska, her extraordinary beauty and intelligence would give her the entree anywhere.' even if she hadn't money to back those qualities up. "'She's enormously wealthy, I hear,' said young Lord Fulkwood, another of the languid smokers, caressing his scarcely perceptible moustache. "'My mother thinks she is a divorcee.' Sir Chetwynd looked very serious and shook his fat head solemnly. "'Well, there is nothing remarkable in being divorced, you know,' laughed Ross Courtney. "'Nowadays it seems the natural and fitting end of marriage.' Sir Chetwynd looked graver still. He refused to be drawn into this kind of flippant conversation. He, at any rate, was respectably married. He had no sympathy whatever with the larger majority of people whose marriages were a failure. "'There is no Prince Ziska, then?' he inquired. "'The name sounds to me of Russian origin, and I imagined, my wife also imagined, that the husband of the lady might very easily be in Russia, while his wife's health might necessitate her wintering in Egypt. The Russian winter climate is inclement, I believe.' "'That would be a very neat arrangement,' yawned Lord Falkwood. "'But my mother thinks not. My mother thinks there is not a husband at all, that there never was a husband.' "'In fact, my mother has very strong convictions on the subject, "'but my mother intends to visit her all the same.' "'She does. Lady Falkwood has decided on that. "'Oh, well, in that case,' and Sir Chetwynd expanded his lower chest air balloon, "'of course Lady Chetwynd Lyle can no longer have any scruples on the subject. "'If Lady Falkwood visits the Princess, there can be no doubt as to her actual status.' "'Oh, I don't know,' murmured Lord Falkwood, stroking his downy lip. "'You see, my mother's rather an exceptional person. "'When the governor was alive, she hardly ever went out anywhere, you know. "'And all the people who came to our house in Yorkshire "'had to bring their pedigrees with them, so to speak. "'It was beastly dull. "'But now my mother has taken to studying character, don't you know? "'She likes all sorts of people about her.' 
and the more mixed they are, the more she is delighted with them. Fact, I assure you, quite a change has come over my mother since the poor old governor died. Ross Courtney looked amused. A change indeed had come over Lady Falkwood, a change sudden, mysterious, and amazing to many of her former distinguished friends with pedigrees. In her husband's lifetime, her hair had been a soft silver grey, her face pale, refined, and serious, her form full and matronly, her step sober and discreet. But two years after the death of the kindly and noble old lord who had cherished her as the apple of his eye, and up to the last moment of his breath had thought her the most beautiful woman in England, she appeared with golden tresses, a peach-bloom complexion, and a figure which had been so massaged, rubbed, pressed, and artistically corseted as to appear positively sylph-like. She danced like a fairy, she who had once been called Old Lady Falkwood. She smoked cigarettes, she laughed like a child at every trivial thing. Any joke, however stale, flat, and unprofitable, was sufficient to stir her light pulses to merriment. And she flirted, oh heavens, how she flirted! with a skill and a grace and a knowledge and an aplomb that nearly drove Muriel and Dolly Chetwynd Lyle frantic. They, poor things, were beaten out of the field altogether by her superior tact and art of fence, and they hated her accordingly and called her in private a horrid old woman, which perhaps when her maid undressed her she was but she was having a distinctly good time in Cairo. She called her son, who was in delicate health, my poor dear little boy, and he, though twenty-eight on his last birthday, was reduced to such an abject condition of servitude by her assertiveness, impudent gaiety, and general freedom of manner, that he could not open his mouth without alluding to my mother, and using my mother as a peg whereon to hang all his own opinions and emotions, as well as the opinions and emotions of other people. Lady Falkwood admires the princess very much, I believe, said another lounger who had not yet spoken. Oh, as to that, and Lord Falkwood roused himself to some faint show of energy, who wouldn't admire her? "'By Jove, only I tell you what, there's something weird about her eyes. "'Fact, I don't like her eyes. "'Shut up, Falk. She has beautiful eyes,' burst out Courtney, hotly. "'Then flushing suddenly, he bit his lips and was silent. "'Who is this that has beautiful eyes?' suddenly demanded a slow, gruff voice and a little thin gentleman, dressed in a kind of academic gown and cap, appeared on the scene. "'Hello! Here's our F.R.S.A.' exclaimed Lord Falkwood. "'By Jove! Is that the style you have got yourself up in for tonight? It looks awfully smart, don't you know?' The personage, thus complimented, adjusted his spectacles and surveyed his acquaintances with a very well-satisfied air. In truth, Dr. Maxwell Dean had some reason for self-satisfaction, if the knowledge that he possessed one of the cleverest heads in Europe could give a man cause for pride. He was apparently the only individual in the Gezira Palace Hotel who had come to Egypt for any serious purpose, a purpose he had, though what it was he declined to explain. Reticent, often brusque, and sometimes mysterious in his manner of speech, there was not the slightest doubt that he was at work on something, and that he also had a very trying habit of closely studying every object, small or great, that came under his observation. He studied the natives to such an extent that he knew every differing shade of colour in their skins. He studied Sir Chetwynd Lyle and knew that he occasionally took bribes to put things into his paper. He studied Dolly and Demuriel Chetwynd Lyle, and knew that they would never succeed in getting husbands. He studied Lady Falkwood, and thought her very well got up for sixty. He studied Ross Courtney, 
and knew he would never do anything but kill animals all his life and he studied the working of the gezira palace hotel and saw a fortune rising out of it for the proprietors but apart from these ordinary surface things he studied other matters occult peculiarities of temperament coincidences strange occurrences generally he could read the egyptian hieroglyphs perfectly and he understood the difference between royal cartouche scarabay and birmingham manufactured ones he was never dull he had plenty to do and he took everything as it came in its turn even the costume ball for which he had now attired himself did not present itself to him as a bore but as a new vein of information opening to him fresh glimpses of the genus homo as seen in a state of eccentricity i think he now said complacently that the cap and gown look well for a man of my years it is a simple garb but cool convenient and not unbecoming i had thought at first of adopting the dress of an ancient egyptian priest but i find it difficult to secure the complete outfit i would never wear a costume of the kind that was not in every point historically correct no one smiled no one would have dared to smile at dr maxwell dean when he spoke of historically correct things he had studied them as he had studied everything and he knew all about them sir chetwynd murmured quite right uh, the ancient designs were very elaborate and symbolic finished dr dean symbolic of very curious meanings i assure you but i fear i have interrupted your talk mr courtney was speaking about somebody's beautiful eyes who is the fair one in question the princess ziska said lord Falkwood. i was saying that i don't quite like the look of her eyes why not why not demanded the doctor with sudden asperity what's the matter with them everything's the matter with them replied ross courtney with a forced laugh they're too splendid and wild for folk he likes the english pale blue better than the egyptian gazelle black no i don't said lord Falkwood, speaking more animatedly than was customary with him i hate pale blue eyes i prefer soft violet grey ones like miss murray's miss helen murray is a very charming young lady said dr dean but her beauty is quite of an ordinary type while that of the princess ziska is extraordinary exactly that's just what i say declared courtney i think she is the loveliest woman i have ever seen there was a pause during which the little doctor looked with a ferret-like curiosity from one man to the other sir chetwynd lyle rose ponderously up from the depths of his armchair i think said he i had better go and get into my uniform the windsor you know i always have it with me wherever i go it comes in very useful for fancy balls such as the one we are going to have to-night when no particular period is observed in costume isn't it about time we all got ready upon my life i think it is agreed lord Falkwood. i am coming out as a neapolitan fisherman i don't believe neapolitan fishermen ever really dress in the way i'm going to make up but it's the accepted stage type don't you know ah i dare say you will look very well in it murmured ross courtney vaguely hello here comes denzil murray they all turned instinctively to watch the entrance of a handsome young man attired in the picturesque garb worn by florentine nobles during the prosperous reign of the medicis it was a costume admirably adapted to the wearer who being grave and almost stern of feature needed the brightness of jewels and the gloss of velvet and satin to throw out the classic contour of his fine head and enhance the lustre of his brooding darkly passionate eyes denzil murray was a pure-blooded highlander the level brows the firm lips the straight fearless look all bespoke him a son of the heather-crowned mountains and a descendant of the proud races that scorned the sassenach and retained sufficient of the material 
whereof their early phoenician ancestors were made to be capable of both the extremes of hate and love in the most potent forms he moved slowly towards the group of men awaiting his approach with a reserved air of something like hauteur it was possible he was conscious of his good looks but it was equally evident that he did not desire to be made the object of impertinent remark his friends silently recognised this and only lord fulkwood moved to a mild transport of admiration ventured to comment on his appearance i say denzil you're awfully well got up awfully well magnificent denzil murray bowed with a somewhat wearied and sarcastic air when one is in rome or egypt one must do as rome or egypt does he said carelessly if hotel proprietors will give fancy balls it is necessary to rise to the occasion you look very well doctor why don't you other fellows go and get your toggeries on it's past ten o'clock and the princess ziska will be here by eleven there are other people coming besides the princess ziska are there not mr murray inquired sir chetwynd lyle with an obtrusive bantering air denzil murray glanced him over disdainfully i believe there are he answered coolly otherwise the ball would scarcely pay its expenses but as the princess is admittedly the most beautiful woman in cairo this season she will naturally be the centre of attraction that's why i mentioned she would be here at eleven she told you that inquired ross courtney she did courtney looked up then down and seemed about to speak again but checked himself and finally strolled off, followed by Lord Falkwood. "'I hear,' said Dr. Dean then, addressing Denzil Murray, "'that a great celebrity has arrived at this hotel, "'the painter Armand Gervais.' "'Denzil's face brightened instantly with a pleasant smile. "'The dearest friend I have in the world,' he said. "'Yes, he is here. "'I met him outside the door this afternoon. "'We are very old chums. "'I have stayed with him in Paris.' and he has stayed with me in Scotland. A charming fellow. He is very French in his ideas, but he knows England well, and speaks English perfectly. French in his ideas, echoed Sir Chetwynd Lyle, who was just preparing to leave the lounge. Dear me, how is that? He is a Frenchman, said Dr. Dean suavely. Therefore, that his ideas should be French ought not to be a matter of surprise to us, my dear Sir Chetwynd sir chetwynd snorted he had a suspicion that he the editor and proprietor of the daily mail was being laughed at and he at once clambered on his high horse of british morality frenchman or no frenchman he observed the ideas promulgated in france at the present day are distinctly profane and pernicious there is a lack of principle a want of rectitude in uh, the french press for example that is highly deplorable and is the english press immaculate asked denzil languidly we hope so replied sir chetwynd we do our best to make it so and with that remark he took his paunch and himself away into retirement leaving dr dean and young murray facing each other a singular pair enough in the contrast of their appearance and dress the one small lean and wiry in plain-cut loose-flowing academic gown the other tall broad and muscular clad in the rich attire of mediaeval florence and looking for all the world like a fine picture of that period stepped out from its frame there was a silence between them for a moment then the doctor spoke in a low tone it won't do my dear boy i assure you it won't do you will break your heart over a dream and make yourself miserable for nothing and you will break your sister's heart as well "'Perhaps you haven't thought of that.' "'Denzil flung himself into the chair Sir Chetwynd had just vacated, "'and gave vent to a sigh that was almost a groan. "'Helen doesn't know anything yet,' he said hoarsely. "'I know nothing myself. How can I? "'I haven't said a word to—to to her. "'If I spoke all that was in my mind, I dare say she would laugh at me. "'You were the only one who has guessed my secret. "'You saw me last night when I—' when I accompanied her home. But I never passed her palace gates. She wouldn't let me. She bade me good-night outside, 
a servant admitted her and she vanished through the portal like a witch or a ghost sometimes i fancy she is a ghost she is so white so light so noiseless and so lovely he turned his eyes away ashamed of the emotion that moved him dr maxwell dean took off his academic cap and examined its interior as though he considered it remarkable yes he said slowly i have thought the same thing of her myself sometimes further conversation was interrupted by the entrance of the military band of the evening which now crossed the lounge each man carrying his instrument with him and these were followed by several groups of people in fancy dress all ready and eager for the ball pierrots and pierrettes monks in drooping cowls flower-girls water-carriers symbolic figures of the night and morning mingled with the counterfeit presentiments of dead and gone kings and queens began to flock together laughing and talking on their way to the ballroom and presently among them came a man whose superior height and build combined with his eminently picturesque half-savage type of beauty caused every one to turn and watch him as he passed and murmur whispering comments on the various qualities wherein he differed from themselves he was attired for the occasion as a bedouin chief and his fierce black eyes and close curling dark hair combined with the natural olive tint of his complexion were well set off by the snowy folds of his turban and the whiteness of his entire costume which was unrelieved by any colour save at the waist where a gleam of scarlet was shown in the sash which helped to fasten a murderous-looking dagger and other correct weapons of attack to his belt he entered the hall with a swift and singularly light step and made straight for denzil murray ah here you are he said speaking english with a slight foreign accent which was more agreeable to the ear than otherwise but my excellent boy what magnificence a medici costume never say to me that you are not vain you're as conscious of your good looks as any pretty woman behold me how simple and unobtrusive i am he laughed and murray sprang up from the chair where he had been despondently reclining oh come i like that he exclaimed simple and unobtrusive why everybody is staring at you now as if you had dropped from the moon you cannot be armand gervaise and simple and unobtrusive at the same time why not demanded gervaise lightly fame is capricious and her trumpet is not loud enough to be heard all over the world at once the venerable proprietor of the dirty bazaar where i managed to purchase these charming articles of bedouin costume had never heard of me in his life miserable man he does not know what he has missed here his flashing black eyes lit suddenly on dr dean who was studying him in the same sort of pertinacious way that learned little man studied everything a friend of yours denzil he inquired yes responded murray readily a very great friend dr maxwell dean dr dean let me introduce you to armand gervaise i need not explain him further you need not indeed said the doctor with a ceremonious bow the name is one of universal celebrity it is not always an advantage this universal celebrity replied gervaise nor is it true that any celebrity is actually universal perhaps the only living person that is universally known by name at least is zola mankind are at one in their appreciation of vice i cannot altogether agree with you there said dr dean slowly keeping his gaze fixed on the artist's bold proud features with singular curiosity the french academy i presume are individually as appreciative of human weaknesses as most men and taken collectively some spirit higher and stronger than their own keeps them unanimous in their rejection of the notorious realist who sacrifices all the canons of art and beauty to the discussion of topics unmentionable in decent society gervaise laughed idly ah he will get in some day you may be sure he answered 
There is no spirit higher and stronger than the spirit of naturalism in man, and in time, when a few prejudices have died away, and mawkish sentiment has been worn threadbare, Zola will be enrolled as the first of the French Academicians with even more honours than if he had succeeded in the beginning. That is the way of all those select bodies. As Napoleon said, Le monde vient à celui qui sait attendre. The little doctor's countenance now showed the most lively and eager interest. You quite believe that, Monsieur Gervaise? You're entirely sure of what you said just now? What did I say? I forget, smiled Gervaise, lighting a cigarette and beginning to smoke it leisurely. You said there is no spirit higher or stronger than the spirit of naturalism in man. Are you positive on this point? Why, of course, most entirely positive. And the great painter looked amused as he gave the reply. Naturalism is nature, or the things appertaining to nature, and there is nothing higher or stronger than nature everywhere and anywhere. How about God? inquired Dr. Dean with a curious air, as if he were propounding a remarkable conundrum. God? Gervaise laughed loudly. Pardon? Are you a clergyman? By no means, and the doctor gave a little bow and deprecating smile. I am not in any way connected with the church. I am a doctor of laws and literature, a humble student of philosophy and science generally. Philosophy? Science? interrupted Gervaise. And you ask about God, Pablo. Science and philosophy have progressed beyond him. Exactly. And Dr. Dean rubbed his hands together pleasantly. That is your opinion? Yes, I thought so. Science and philosophy, to put it comprehensively, have beaten poor God on his own ground. Ha ha, very good, very good, and humorous as well. Ha ha. And a very droll appearance just then had this humble student of philosophy and science generally, for he bent himself to and fro with laughter, and his small eyes almost disappeared behind his shelving brows in the excess of his mirth, and two cross lines formed themselves near his thin mouth. Such lines are carven on the ancient Greek masks which indicate satire. Denzil Murray flushed uncomfortably. Gervaise doesn't believe in anything but art, he said, as though half apologising for his friend. Art is the sole object of his existence. I don't believe he ever has time to think about anything else. Of what else should I think, mon ami? exclaimed Gervaise mirthfully. Of life it is all art to me, and by art I mean the idealization and transfiguration of nature. Oh, if you do that sort of thing, you are a romanticist, interposed Dr. Dean emphatically. Nature neither idealizes nor transfigures itself. It is simply nature, and no more. Matter uncontrolled by spirit is anything but ideal. Precisely, answered Gervaise quickly, and with some warmth. But my spirit idealizes it. My imagination sees beyond it. My soul grasps it. Oh, you have a soul, exclaimed Dr. Dean, beginning to laugh again. Now, how did you find that out? Gervaise looked at him in a sudden surprise. Every man has an inward self, naturally, he said. We call it soul, has a figure of speech. It is really temperament, merely. Oh, it is merely temperament? Then you don't think it is likely to outlive you, this soul, to take new phases upon itself and go on existing an immortal being when your body is in a far worse condition because less carefully preserved than an Egyptian mummy? Certainly not, and Gervaise flung away the end of his finished cigarette. The immortality of the soul is quite an exploded theory. It was always a ridiculous one. We have quite enough to vex us in our present life, and why men ever set about inventing another is more than I am able to understand. It was a most foolish and barbaric superstition. The gay sound of music now floated towards them from the ballroom, the strains of a graceful, joyous, half-commanding, half-pleading waltz came rhythmically beating on the air like the measured movement of wings, and Denzel Murray, beginning to grow restless, walked to and fro, his eyes watching every figure that crossed and recrossed the hall. 
but Dr. Dean's interest in Armand Gervais remained intense and unabated, and approaching him he laid two lean fingers delicately on the white folds of the Bedouin dress just where the heart of the man was hidden. A foolish and barbaric superstition, he echoed slowly and meditatively, you do not believe in any possibility of there being a life or several lives after this present death, though which we must all pass inevitably sooner or later. Not in the least. I leave such ideas to the ignorant and uneducated. I should be unworthy of the progressive teachings of my time if I believed such arrant nonsense. Death, you consider, finishes all. There is nothing further, no mysteries beyond and Dr. Dean's eyes glittered as he stretched forth one thin, slight hand and pointed into space with the word beyond, an action which gave it a curious emphasis and, for a fleeting second, left a weird impression on even the careless mind of Gervaise, but he laughed it off lightly. "'Nothing beyond, of course not, my dear sir. Why ask such a question?' "'Nothing can be plainer or more positive than the fact that death, as you say,' finishes all. A woman's laugh, low and exquisitely musical, rippled on the air as he spoke. Delicious laughter, rarer than song, for women, as a rule, laugh too loudly, and the sound of their merriment partakes more of the nature of a goose's cackle than any other sort of natural melody. But this laugh, soft and silvery, was like a delicately subdued cadence played on a magic flute in the distance, and suggested nothing but sweetness, and at the sound of it Gervaise started violently and turned sharply round upon his friend Murray with a look of wonderment and perplexity. "'Who is that?' he demanded. "'I have heard that pretty laugh before. It must be someone I know.' But Denzil scarcely heard him. Pale and with eyes full of yearning and passion, he was watching the slow approach of a group of people in fancy dress who were all eagerly pressing round one central figure, the figure of a woman clad in gleaming golden tissues and veiled in the old Egyptian fashion up to the eyes with jewels flashing about her waist, bosom and hair, a woman who moved glidingly as if she floated rather than walked, and whose beauty, half-hidden as it was by the exigencies of the costume she had chosen, was so unusual and brilliant that it seemed to create an atmosphere of bewilderment and rapture around her as she came. She was preceded by a small Nubian boy in a costume of vivid scarlet, who, walking backwards humbly, fanned her slowly with a tall fan of peacock's plumes made after the quaint designs of ancient Egypt. The lustre radiating from the peacock's feathers, the light of her golden garments, her jewels and the marvellous black splendour of her eyes, all flashed for a moment like sudden lightning on Gervaise. Something he knew not what turned him giddy and blind. Hardly knowing what he did, he sprang eagerly forward, when all at once he felt the lean, small hand of Dr. Dean on his arm, and stopped short, embarrassed. "'Pardon me,' said the little savant, with a delicate, half-supercilious lifting of his eyebrows, "'but do you know the Princess Ziska?' End of chapter 1